You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? All right. If we could bring it down to a dull roar. I think you, one person got that. Cool. So if you're new here, uh, my name is David Dowdy, and I am the teaching pastor here at Revolution Church, and we're glad that you guys are here. Uh, you obviously don't know what we're doing this evening. Uh, so what, what we've been doing for the last few months is we're doing a sermon series right now called Bible Stories, subtitled Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing is we're looking at the most famous Old Testament stories and seeing how they all point to and foreshadow Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ himself said that all scripture points to him in Luke, I believe it's Luke 24 uh, or 22. He taught his disciples from the scriptures, showing them everything concerning himself. So that's our goal in this series that we're in. Um, So this week, we are going to be, as Stephen said uh, earlier, we are going to be in the book of Esther. um, And we are going to be looking at the entire book of Esther. Uh, It's ten chapters long. I'm not going to read all ten chapters to you, although... We had time. I would definitely do that. Um, but just some fun facts for you, real quick, before we go in. I don't know why I love names. Uh, like when I find out like names in the Bible, uh, the text will straight up tell you Esther's Hebrew name was Hadassah. Uh, but what, what it doesn't tell you is that Esther is probably a derivative of Ishtar, a Babylonian goddess. So I thought that was just really cool uh, that her name is actually a pagan name. Uh, so don't name your kids Esther. Um, I'm just kidding. Someone I'm sure has an Aunt Esther, and that was a joke. Um, <laughs> right, but Esther uh, was a woman who was used greatly by God to secure the safety of God's people. Um, you know, she was a, a nobody. Right, she was a nobody of no great renown. She was a nobody um, that God raised up to be queen over the entire Babylonian Empire. Um, right, so so we we know we we know uh, some stuff about Esther. Uh, obviously, the book's named after her. Uh, but I want you to know something going into this sermon, and, and that is that this book is not about Esther. Right, just like we've said this all throughout this series, uh, the people, like the the human beings who who are the characters in these historical accounts, uh, the 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 Bible is not about them, and it's not really about what they did. The Bible is primarily a book about God, and about what He has done. The, The refrain throughout Scripture is that man is sinful, God is gracious, and God provides a way of atonement for man. That's that's the big theme of Scripture, right? So Scripture, we ought not read it in a man-centered way, but we should always be looking for, what does this tell me about God, right? Um, But something that you'll notice if you go home and read the entire book of Esther, which you should, it's one of the most readable books of the Bible. Um, It reads like like more like a novel than anything else. Uh, But something you'll notice is that God is not explicitly mentioned one single time in this whole book. His name's not mentioned. The generic name God is not mentioned. Prayer is not explicitly mentioned. He is alluded to, and those things are alluded to, but it's never explicitly said. Um, but nevertheless, God is present everywhere and at every moment throughout this account, and you guys are going to see that. Um, but some people, some people will read the book of Esther, and they'll see a morality tale. Right? They'll see a morality tale about how the people of God stood up to their oppressors and courageously faced a pagan empire and the possibility of death and came out victorious because they weren't afraid to act. And that's got some merit to it for certain. I'm not going to deny that. But that's also an incredibly man-centered way of reading this book. 
right? And, and God save us from man-centered preaching and man-centered theology, right? Because, again, the Bible is a book about God. So while that has some truth to it, um, I want us to not be focusing so much on those things. As we look at this account this evening, I want us to be looking for God's work and hand guiding all the events that, that, that come to pass to their end, which is the salvation of his people, Right, so that being said, we've got a lot of ground to cover this evening, uh, so I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into the text, and just so you guys know, I'm going to be like weaving and jumping back and forth between telling you what happened in the story and reading from the text so that we can look at this whole book, get a 30,000 foot view of it all in one sitting. So with that being said, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to hop into this. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your hand of providence that has guided us all here this evening to be under the preaching of your word, under the preaching of your gospel. Holy Spirit, please do a sovereign work of grace here this evening. Please bring someone from death to life. And God, the people who already belong to you, draw us in to know that you are good and that whatever comes to pass, you have brought us to that place and that you love us dearly and that you're shaping our lives in accordance with your will, and that's a good, perfect will. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so cool. Uh, the setting, right, the setting that we're in with Esther is the Babylonian exile. All right, so the Jews have been taken to the Babylonian empire in captivity, which is God's judgment on the, on the Jewish nation for their idolatry. He told them through a lot of prophets, hey, guys, I'm going to send you into exile. It's going to go bad if you guys don't repent from your idolatry and turn back to me. And they didn't, and God is always good on his word, right? You believe that. So he sends them off into exile. Um, and while they're there, many Jews begin to assimilate to Babylonian culture, right? Some of them gain status and some prestige, as we're going to see with a man named Mordecai. He works in the king's gate, which is a pretty good position. Uh, but many hide their Jewish identity in order to have an easier life, right? So those are some things to consider for the background. Uh, but now let's get into the story. All right, so... Starts out, chapter 1 starts out with uh, a king named King Ahasuerus. I'm probably just going to call him the king from now on, just to be completely honest with you all. All right, that's that's, that's also the king you guys have probably heard of named Xerxes, right? And he throws this huge party, this big drunken bash, showing like his royal splendor. And this is a huge party, right? It lasts for 180 days, right? Now, I've thrown some house parties whenever my parents went out of town. Sorry, Mom. Um, <laughs> right? But, like, I've never thrown a 180-day party. Uh, and the king, he gets hammered. And while he's drunk, the king does this. Uh, chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. On the seventh day, right, this is the last week of the, of the party. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Right? Now, maybe you're wondering, why didn't Vashti want to come out? Um, some rabbis, like old texts that we have, uh, say, this is a commentary, Scripture's not very clear on it, uh, but they say that Vashti wouldn't come out because the king told her to come out wearing only the crown. And she had the courage and enough decency to say, I'm not going out there like that. Uh, and the king is furious. Right? So the king goes on, he gives an edict, right, a law. He passes a law that says Vashti isn't queen anymore, and something that you need to bear in mind, it's going to come back later. 
edicts from the king cannot be reversed. Right? Now, you may put another law out there that kind of countermands what that original law was, but the laws themselves cannot be reversed once they go into effect. Once the king's signet ring hits that thing, it's done, it's a law. Right? So the king says Vashti can't be queen anymore, and he begins to look for a new queen. So young virgin women are taken from all over the empire, and they're taken to the capital city where King Ahasuerus lives, um, called Susa. All right, so they're all taken to Susa, and they're taken to the king's harem to apply for queenship. Right? It's kind of like a national beauty contest of sorts. Right? And that's where Esther comes in. Right? Esther is a beautiful Jewish woman. Uh, she's the only woman that I know of in the Bible that it says she had a lovely figure, right? which I thought was just kind of funny to me. I was like, okay, so like this lady is a dime. So she had a lovely figure and was beautiful to look at. So that's like the whole package. She is a 10. Uh, she's good looking. Sorry, I know I'm repeating myself a lot on that. I just thought it was funny. All right? <laughs> She wasn't as pretty as Autumn, though. Sorry. Um, (laughs) But she's taken to uh, the king's harem to apply for queenship. And that's where, again, that's where Esther comes in. Her parents are dead at this point, and she has been raised by her cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai tells her not to tell anyone that she's a Jew. Right? Let them think you're Babylonian. Don't tell anyone that you're of Jewish descent. Right? So while she's in the harem, here's the process. Right? The king, each evening, remember this is kind of like a beauty contest of sorts, the king each evening would call in a different woman, and he would sleep with her. Right? And then he would send her to the second harem. And then from there, she would never enter the king's presence ever again unless he was impressed by her and asked for her by name. Right? Like, talk about terrible. Like, essentially, these women end up living in prison. Right? Once the king's had them, no one else can have them. But then we see this, chapter 2, verse 17. It's Esther's turn. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won, the grace, or she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Right, so the king falls for Esther. Esther is queen. And then this happens immediately after. Don't forget this part. It's going to be important later when we get to chapter 6. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. And in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Right, so Mordecai finds out a couple people want to kill the king. He snitches them out. king has him, has him hanged, and it's recorded. And then chapter 3 goes on to tell us that a man named Haman the Agagite, or Agagite, I can't remember how to, how to pronounce that, I'm sorry. A man named Haman, right, He's, he is made a high-ranking official. The king raises him up. He is second to only the king. Now, Haman's name tells us that he was a descendant of an Amalekite king. Right? Now, the Amalekites were the enemies of Israel. God told Israel, you wipe all of them out whenever they were first taking Canaan. And they didn't, so they became a thorn in Israel's flesh. And there's fighting between the two all the time. Right? This is important that we understand Haman is of that descent and that everyone would have known it. Because all people, as Haman walks by, they are supposed to bow in respect to Haman. But Mordecai refuses to do so. Again, he's a Jew. He can't stand the Amalekites. He can't stand Haman just by nature of who Haman is. Right? And Mordecai ends up revealing that he will not bow down to him because he is a Jew. And Haman responds this way. 
And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they, made, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, that Mordecai was Jewish, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So Haman then says, I'm going to kill all the Jews because Mordecai has disrespected me, which proves that he's just an anti-Semite, right? He's like the Adolf Hitler of the ancient world. And Haman then convinces the king. He goes to the king, and he convinces the king to give a decree to slaughter all the Jews. And he does so by bribing him with 10,000 talents of silver. All right, well, this is like an ungodly sum of money. This is like billion dollars, right? Huge sum of money. And he bribes the king, and the king gives him the authority to give orders to kill all the Jews on one day. Esther 3.13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And when this decree goes out, right, everyone in Susa goes into confusion. Right, everyone, and the Jews especially, the Jews are in mourning, they're crying openly, this is a reference to prayer, that they're crying out to God, and Mordecai is sitting in sackcloth at the king's gate where he works, mourning, and Esther has no idea what's going on, so Esther sends out to Mordecai to find out what's happening, and he explains, right, and he begs Esther, appeal to the king on behalf of your people, And Esther says this back to him. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. She's saying the king hasn't asked for me. If I go in there uninvited, he can have me killed. Unless he extends his scepter towards me, I'm going to be murdered if I do this. And Mordecai responds with this. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's the most famous line in this entire book. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Mordecai's response is, look, God's going to deliver his people somehow through this. And not only that, but he may have brought you here that you might do some good and deliver us from certain death. So Esther then agrees to go before the king. And she says, if I die, I die. Just fast for me for three days. Right? So she's essentially asking for prayer for this mission that she's going to be going on to stand before the king. And then the day finally comes. Chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther asks for the king and Haman to eat a meal with her. And the king obviously agrees. He said he'd do whatever she asked. And at the feast, the king asks again, You know, what do you want? I know it was more than just to eat dinner with me. What is it that you wanted? And Esther says, I want another feast with you tomorrow. Right, which is way better. My wife can tell me what she wants to eat for dinner ever, and Esther's telling them I want to make dinner for you. That just must be something I'm not used to. Um, 
Anyway, what do you want? I don't know. What do you want? Let's not do this for an hour. Um, <laughs> all right, but chapter 5, uh, we're going to read a good swath here because it's easier for me to read this than for me to retell you, and the Scripture says it better than I ever could. So they go and eat, and she says, but I want both of you, Haman and the king, to eat with me tomorrow. Verse 9, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubit high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. And on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse to the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. That is hilarious, right? That is awesome. All right, so Mordecai goes and does so. Or not Mordecai, Haman goes and does so. And after honoring Mordecai, the text actually tells us Haman goes home and weeps, right? And he's crying to his wife and Haman's wife says to him, if Mordecai is a Jew, then you will fall before him, right? So you'd imagine him saying like, well, you could have told me that earlier, Right, like before I plotted this whole thing, because she says, if Mordecai is a Jew, you're going to fall before him. You will not succeed. We're going to read another big passage. And while they were yet talking with him, with Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. 
Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And the word left the mouth of the king. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So then Esther then finally goes on to reveal her relation to Mordecai and her ethnicity. She's already revealed. She does it more explicitly. I'm a Jew. Mordecai is my cousin. And Mordecai is given Haman's possessions and Haman's position in the kingdom. So Mordecai now has the authority to issue an edict on the king's behalf. But remember, you can't reverse an edict that's already been passed. Remember Haman, the law Haman passed saying, slaughter all the Jews on this certain day. So Mordecai writes a law saying that the Jews can defend themselves on Haman's day of slaughter. All right, they're allowed to do that. And when the day comes, the Jews conquer their enemies. Esther 9.1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So there's a great reversal of things that happen at the end of this story. The Jews slaughter those in self-defense who were coming to attack them. And they begin to institute a holiday called Purim, which actually just happened a couple of weeks ago, where they celebrate um, their victory over people who sought to kill them. Uh, Purim actually means uh, comes from a root word that means lots, because the text tells us that Haman cast lots, as in casting lots to, to his false gods, saying, what's the best day that I might slaughter them? So it's kind of an ironic way to name a holiday, because they say Haman cast lots, but our God determined how they fall. Right? So, I know that took a good while, and I appreciate your patience on that. It, it, it could be a movie. I'm sure it is, but it's probably a stupid movie. Um, <laughs> right? That's usually what happens when people take the Bible and turn it into film. Um, but the 30,000-foot view... Right. What's the big view here of the story of Esther? I, I would argue this hardcore. The main theme of this book is divine providence. Right? So though God is not explicitly mentioned, this book is dripping with his presence. All over the place, every turn, moment to moment, verse by verse, God is presently active with his hand of providence. And I know what some of you are thinking. The Calvinist is going to talk about sovereignty again. Right? Yep. Right? <laughs> That's how this is going to go down. Right? And the reason why is the Bible repeats itself all the time. Consider this. The gospel is the theme of all the scripture. Everything points to Christ crucified in our place. Everything points to our sinfulness and need for a redeemer in the Messiah who was to come or who has already come, depending on what passage that you're reading in the scriptures. Right? So the gospel is the key theme on repeat. I would argue this. Right on its heels is the divine sovereignty of God and the affairs of all that comes to pass. 
I would argue that is a key theme. It's not the theme of Scripture, but that is just right on the heels of the gospel. Right? So we're going to talk about providence. So here's, here's just a generic definition of providence. Divine guidance or care. Right? God's power sustaining and guiding all things. That's providence. Now, I want to read to you guys uh, chapter 5, section 1 out of the 1689 Confession, because I think it gives a more clear definition for us. And by the way, if you guys want a copy of that, please let me know. I'll give you one for free. Um, Here's what it has to say. I think this is really carefully worded. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable, that means unchanging, counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. That's good. That's good stuff. So what is it saying? God, who created all in his power and wisdom, upholds and governs all creatures and things, from the smallest, most insignificant thing to the greatest, most important thing in all creation. And he guides them toward the end for which that he created them, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the counsel of his own will, so that he might receive praise and glory for his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. That's good. That's the truth. I hope you guys can commit that to memory. All right, work on it. Know that concept at least. God governs all things in accordance with his will for his glory. Right? Now, but I'm not preaching from the confession, right? That's just a good guide. It's just a clear, precisely worded thing for us to use. It's, it's, it's a good resource for us. But so here's what I want to do. Just, I'm going to read seven passages as quickly as I can. Look at, let's look at some text about God's decree, providence, and sovereignty. Because I, I want you to see it from the Bible, not from the confession. All right? Hebrews 1, 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds it. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's a reference to the Godhead. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Jesus, in Matthew 10.29-31, makes it more personal for us. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you of more value than many sparrows. That doesn't mean that they don't fall to the ground apart from God knowing, but they don't fall to the ground apart from God's permission, apart from his will. Ephesians 1.11, In him, Christ, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Proverbs 16.33, The lot, the dice, is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So even things that seem insignificant and random are, not in, are indeed not random. God determines how they fall. Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And by the way, Romans 8.28 is a promise only to the believer. If you're here and you're not a believer, if your trust is not in Christ, if you're not following Christ, all things are actually working together for your destruction because that's where you're headed. 
All things are working together that God might show his divine wrath against you if you do not repent and turn to Christ. Romans 8.28 is a promise towards believers. But all things work together for the good of those who are called by God and who love God. And it's all done according to the purpose of God. So this means, all this text, right? Esther's story, the confession, those texts we just look at. This means that all things are from God's providence towards us. All things. Right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, got a, I got a laundry list of things here. These things are real to us. I don't say them lightly. These are real reasons to weep and real reasons to rejoice, and they are very real to our congregation at this point. All things are from God's providence towards us. Death and life, pregnancy and miscarriage, sickness, health, singleness, marriage, Poverty, wealth, employment, unemployment, pain, suffering, joy, war, peace. All things are from the providence of God. All things whatsoever comes to pass come by the decree and providence of God Almighty. All things. Whether it hurts or whether it causes you to rejoice. Alright, so God's sovereign decree puts all things into motion, right? From eternity past, Isaiah 46.10, declaring, right, his decree, declaring the end from the beginning. So his decree puts all things into motion, and nothing happens apart from, his, from the decree. But, hear me on this, and here, here's where there's a nuance to providence uh, as opposed to just the decree of God. God does not just decree things and then sit back uninvolved and brings them all together at the end. It's like a modified deism that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. God doesn't just decree and then sit back uninvolved. The doctrine of providence tells us that God actively governs. Moment to moment, He's actively, intimately involved with His creation. Right. So His decree stands, yes. He decrees all things that come to pass, yes. But He is also working in all things personally to accomplish that which He decreed from eternity past. You follow me? He's personally involved. Right? Now, how can I say that? Well, Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds. So he is upholding the universe. Right? Romans 8.28, all things work together. God is implied in that verse as the one working them together. Things just don't work on their own. Someone must work them. So God is working. Psalm 135.6 says God does what he pleases. That means he's doing things every moment. He's always at work. So we look at all this together, the decree and the providence of God, and see that God is actively involved in our lives from moment to moment, and that he is governing all things that come to pass in accordance with his good, holy will for our good and his glory. And that all things that happen in human history are leading us to what we call the consummation of Christ's kingdom. All things are gearing us toward the end where Christ returns for his people, destroys the rebel, and brings peace. All things are gearing toward that. Now, I want us to be aware and in awe that everything that transpires is from the hand of God. That everything that happens to you is serving an eternal purpose. Everything. I want, us to, I want us to be aware of that, right? Like, just think about this. this. This smacked me in the face when I was writing this sermon. How glorious is it that God himself is actively involved in my life? 
Like that should genuinely give us pause, especially for the believer. God has been and always will be actively involved in your life. Think about this. Your salvation is by the providence of God. Why did you hear the gospel? What led you to the conversation where someone declared the good news to you? What led you into the church to hear the gospel sermon that brought you to Christ? Providence. God himself led you to that moment. What gave you the gift of faith? God is giving it to you. Faith is a gift. The providence of God saved us. All things are for our good. Who are we that we deserve such an honor? Who are we that we deserve such an honor that God would work in our lives for our good and His glory? But I want you guys to see the examples of providence that are all throughout Esther. Right? So I got, I got 11 things. We're just going to blast through them. Queen Vashti being dethroned. Right? So that Esther could take over. That didn't happen for no reason. That happened because God providentially made it happen. Right? The king loving Esther. Right? There's a proverb that says the heart of a king is like a river in the hand of God, that God turns it wherever he wants. The king loving Esther was from the providence of God. Mordecai was in the right place at the right time at the king's gates, with, and the two eunuchs were being loud mouths, apparently, for him to hear the plot on the king's life. The fact that Mordecai's actions were recorded in a book that the king could reference later was providence. Right? God's raising up Esther to plead for the Jews, to plead to the king. The king extending the scepter towards Esther whenever he did not do that for everyone who entered into his presence uninvited. The king not being able to sleep. There's a psalm, I'm blanking right now, but there's a psalm that says that sleep is a gift from God. And God providentially withheld that gift from the king and gave him a restless night that he might read in that book what Mordecai did for him. Haman leading Mordecai around on a horse in a bit of poetic justice was providence because he thought that the king was referring to himself. Mordecai being given authority by the king that he might issue an edict was by the hand of providence. The Jews conquering their enemies who raised up against them. The Bible is very clear. God gives the victory in battles to whomever he wills and he gave them victory that day. And then the last thing, and do not forget this, Haman coming to power was from the providential hand of God. Romans 13 says there is not one person in any kind of position authority of authority that God himself has not placed there. Haman rising to power and plotting to kill the Jews was from the providence of God. So the good and the bad in this story, the suffering and the deliverance comes by God's guiding hand. There are no accidents in this story. Likewise, there are no accidents in your life. There's no accidents in all of history. All come from God's providence. Now, why does this doctrine matter? Why must we see this in Esther's story? Because I know what some of you guys think. Do- doctrine and theology is just this dry, dead, boring stuff. Tell me how to live. Right? If I just tell you how to live, I'm, I'm a legalist, just so you know. Like, I'm just telling you to do better instead of telling you why. Or like, what gratitude you should have in your heart. Right? So, but why does this doctrine matter? I'm sure you guys are thinking that. Why must we see this? What good does knowing this do for us? I got a few reasons. I want us to understand and be gripped by this doctrine of providence because there is a growing popularity in our culture for a naturalistic worldview. All right? And that, that cannot creep into the church. And God help us, it has in many places, but it cannot exist in this church body. This naturalistic worldview. Now, here's what naturalism is. I know it's an art term as well, Nick. 
Anyway, um, naturalism, as, as we're talking about it, denies supernatural intervention or any supernatural explanation for anything. It is atheistic in its worldview. That's what naturalism is. Everything, everything can be naturally explained. There is no supernatural. There is no God. Naturalism tells us that the world was made by accident, that you are a cosmic accident. Right? I've heard atheists say, we're just bags of stardust bumping into one another as we you know, whirl through the galaxy on this planet. And I'm sitting there going, why do you get mad whenever someone does something to you you don't like, if you're just stardust? Right? Um, but that's what the naturalistic worldview says. We're just bags of space dust bouncing around. That we're, we're a cosmic accident. The world was made by raw chance. And therefore, everything that comes to pass is meaningless. Think about that. There is no God and everything is just by chance or accident. Every single thing that happens to you is meaningless. There is no meaning to life. There is no purpose for your existence then. And this doctrine shows us that that is just manifest nonsense. Absolute nonsense. All things are from the Lord and therefore carry meaning and purpose because God is not arbitrary. All things are according to His holy, wise counsel in accordance with His ends that He created the things for. And not only that, but this naturalistic worldview, I was an atheist, right? This naturalistic worldview leads to depression. How can you have any joy if everything is meaningless? If it's a veneer joy because deep down you know that your kids don't matter. You don't really love them. Like nothing like, again, births, deaths, whatever. Nothing carries any significance because everything is an accident. It'll rob you of your joy. You'll be hopeless whenever things happen because it'll be senseless suffering. And God saves us from that with this doctrine. He saves us from that. Secondly, there is a view in Christianity, and I might make someone mad this evening. There is, bring it on. There is a view in Christianity, though few will say it. And here's that view. God only really works in the miraculous. God only really works via miracles. And aside from that, he just kind of leaves us on our own. And then every once in a while, he will penetrate into the world and do something insane. Right, but let's define miracle real quick. Miracle is not the birth of a child. I know you guys just think that I'm being a jerk up here. Like, that has a natural explanation. And hopefully I don't have to tell you what that is because your parents should have had the talk, right? Like, a child being born has a natural explanation, right? Theologically, if we're going to narrowly, um, concisely uh, define what a miracle is, theologically, it is God breaking the natural law. It's God breaking the natural law in order to do something. Like, I don't know, a virgin birth? (laughs) That doesn't have a natural explanation. A dead man who's been dead for three days coming back to life. That is a miracle. There is no natural explanation for that. A man who has been blind from birth at the word of another person being able to see. A man who has been paralyzed from birth being able to walk because someone speaks to him and tells him to walk. Those are miracles. Right? But some people think that God is only working in the miraculous Again, that, that's, providence tells us that God is constantly at work and that he's involved in every minute detail of life, that he's never just sitting back and decides to punctuate things every once in a while with a miracle, but that he's always at work. Right? There's a sub-Christian movement, and there's a couple of churches that have started doing this junk around here, but there's a sub-Christian movement that is always looking for the miraculous. And they believe that God isn't really doing anything unless it's blatantly supernatural. And what an offense to God. That that is. 
To say that God is fundamentally absent or essentially absent unless he's doing something blatantly supernatural. What an offense to God because he is guiding us all the time. You know, people spend their whole lives looking for God to do something crazy cool or whatever they want to call it. And the whole time, God is right in front of their faces guiding and shaping their lives. They just don't recognize it. He's always there. Know this, every situation... You're in every conversation you have, every job that you have had or will have, every home that you've lived in, every skill set that you have, every friend, every family member is all from the hand of God. It's all His hand and His grace towards you. And then thirdly, this is important, and this is probably the most real one, might hit the most of us here this evening. Sometimes our feelings, right, because of suffering, and circumstances cause us to think like deists. Right? Now here's what deism is. Deism is this belief that God made the world and then set it on a clock and put it in motion and lets it go and he stands back uninvolved. Right? That's deism. And I think that sometimes our feelings because of of suffering and pain make us think like deists. Where we have a series of, of... horrible things happen to us and suffering beats us down and we begin to think God has abandoned me to my enemies God has abandoned me to poverty God has abandoned me to singleness God has abandoned me to death we begin to think yeah he made me and he made everything but he's not here and in that moment an understanding of sovereignty and providence will make us look those emotions in the face and say, God has brought me here. This is not pointless. He is with me even now. He is intimately involved and he loves me in the suffering and his hand has brought me to the suffering and his hand will bring me out someday in some way. Kind of like we talked about a few weeks ago with Elijah in the still small voice. God is present in the silence. But I want us to see God's hand of providence at work every moment of every day and be captivated by it as we see his hand in all things. I have a couple of reasons why. One, understanding this guards our joy. It really does. It guards your joy. It gives you hope in the dark night of the soul. Right When you're older and the house is empty, whether by death or your children moving out, the house is empty. When you wake up to a dead spouse, when your child dies, when you can't find a job, when life sucks, I just call it what it is, whenever life is just terrible, we can take comfort knowing that the providence that sent Christ to the cross and brought us to faith is the same providence that has led us to whatever it is that we're facing. There's comfort there. It's been said many times, God's sovereignty and His providence are the pillow on which the Christian lays his head at night. That's how we sleep. God is in control of this and He has brought me to this. That's how we keep our joy in the midst of suffering. But not only that, and here's a little bit happier one for you. This doctrine increases a heart of thankfulness. Right? Like, as we see the blessings of God in good times, right? Like, as we see pregnancy, 
right? Like with Miss Craft, right? Congratulations, that is awesome, right? As we see pregnancy, as we, as, we, as we get a job that we needed, or we get money that we desperately needed, or, or we eat food, right? It, it, or just living in general, sleep, friends, family. Whenever we read the scriptures, the, the fact that we're, that we're Christians, right? The car that we drive, the, the spouse that we have, and above all things, Christ crucified in our place. As we see the blessings of God clearly in good times, understanding the doctrine of God's providence makes us turn and say, this is not from me. This is not from my wisdom. This is not from my hard work. This is from the hand of God who gives every good and perfect gift. And then we bless God in gratitude. It protects us from joy and gives us a heart of thanks. But where is Christ in this text? How how does providence in Esther's story point us to Jesus? Let's think about this. Big picture. Big picture of the scriptures, all right? If Haman succeeds in his plan, all of the Jews would have died. If all of the Jews die, no Messiah comes. If no Messiah comes, if Christ does not come to bear the weight of sin for his people, there is damnation for all and no hope for anyone. Salvation itself hangs in the balance in Esther's story that you may not see it right off the bat. Salvation itself hangs in the balance. And what happens? God breaks through human history with his hand of providence to save his people so that Christ could come. And just as God raised up Esther and Mordecai to save his people from the death that they were sold into by Haman, in a much greater way, God sent Christ to save his people from the wrath that we had sold ourselves into because of our wickedness and sin against God. And in Christ's death and resurrection, Christ redeemed us for himself. And why? Because of the decree of God. Because of God's providential hand. God is faithful. He decreed that he would save his people by Christ. So he protected his people in order to secure the coming of Christ. To ensure the salvation of his elect. His providence is always faithful to his promise. Take that to the bank. His providence will always be faithful to his promise. So how ought we respond? I think the answer is found in Mordecai's words to Esther. He says this, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? It's a great way to respond to suffering. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Our response needs to be, God has brought me here for a purpose whatever it is that I'm facing, and I will honor him. There is no fate, there is no chance, there is no luck. God has brought me here, and I am in this situation for a reason, and I will show his nature and character to those around me as I'm in this. I will honor him. Not only that, but there's hope here that Mordecai has. Also in verse 14 of chapter 4, he says, To Esther, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. What is he saying there? He's saying God will bring deliverance for his people. I don't know how, but he will. Because he is doing good for his people. He will be faithful because he is faithful. He will see me through this. His providence has brought me here. He will see me through. 
Now hear me on this. Your deliverance might be death. I'm not above saying that. But we will be saved. We will be with him. Our deliverance may be death, but the outcome of death for a Christian, that's glory. And I think we also need to always remind, re- remember that there will be a great day of reversal. Like in chapter 9, where they said the reverse occurred and the Jews were victorious over their enemies. I think we need to keep in mind that there is coming a day. All of history, by God's hand, is coming towards the moment of consummation of His kingdom. Where God Himself will wipe away every tear, and there will be no pain, and there will be no suffering, and no death, and no sickness, and no strife, and no loneliness. And God will destroy His opponents. And He will save His saints. And we will rest with Him in His eternal city. And He will dwell with us. And He will be our God. And He will be our light. There's coming a day where God will reign unopposed and we will be saved. So leave here knowing that God is actively, intimately involved in your life. That He is guiding you to and through every single situation that you encounter. And then leave here also with hearts full of joy and full of hope and thanks toward the God who has so richly blessed you in Christ by His providence and decree. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being sovereign. Thank You for being in control of all things, whether they bring us joy or pain. Thank you for being faithful to us, though we're sinners and we don't deserve it, though we rebel against you and we don't deserve a single good thing, but that your hand is with us and guiding us. God, cause us to be captivated by that and see you even in the mundane things of life. Root us down in the truth that nothing is meaningless. Root us in the truth that you preserve, you protect, you do all things by your decree. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.